If Murray had supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. Sure, America's first. Blah, blah, blah. The blah, blah, blah. Sending out good vibes. Blah, blah, blah. Good vibes. Good vibes. Blah, blah, blah. Good vibes. Good vibes. Underneath breaths of deep gratitude and prayers for guidance and protection. And put on a didgeridoo and shamanic drumming track. Shivers or vibrations and stuff like that. So if you're not, so sometimes when people start meditating, things will percolate up into awareness, stuff that they usually don't pay attention to, maybe even stuff that they've repressed, but a lot of that needs to be cleared. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Great America Show. We are going to be chatting with Frank Pasciutti a little bit later about uh, the chrysalis crisis, which is kind of about uh, finding yourself through crisis or or growing through crisis, which is uh, great timing because, well, it's kind of a running theme in the show for the last 100 episodes or so. So we'll just keep going with that vein. And it's a fantastic chat. Um, yeah, Frank was a fantastic cat. I think you guys will really enjoy it. Uh, we got Michael, friend of the show, Michael, in hey, studio today. Up? How's it going? Thanks Everybody likes me. it when Truffaut is in town. Hey. And we got Graham. I'm wearing the same shirt Darren was wearing today. Dunlop, how's <laughs> yeah, it going, buddy? Good, good. How you doing? I changed my shirt, luckily, because yeah, it would be pretty weird if we were wearing the same shirt on the live stream later. Yeah, that's true. Maybe we need to talk about these sorts of things. Did you have a backup, just in case? Oh, I just I just didn't care. Okay. Yeah. So let's make it, if we do end up wearing the same shirt, you have to go shirtless. <laughs> Not me. Good thing I just shaved my chest. Did you? That's a slippery slope. It's <laughs> no such thing. This says Scott Adams. I disagree. Yeah, me too. I'm going to bring that up. Yeah, me too. In November. Yeah, we're going to challenge him on that one. So if anybody has any good arguments for why there is a slippery slope. Do you seriously shave your chest? Sometimes. You can't do the push-ups, but you're shaving your chest. Do you wax it? Or like do you, why don't you just nair it? No. Why would you use chemicals when you can just use a... I was living with a guy yeah. one time. He always had that like hair removing thing oh. and it just creeped me out. Man. I just, I don't get it. That just like, Phew. anyway, anyway, it's enough of that. How you is been? This is a great chat. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. We get into all kinds of stuff, like similar along those veins of the, uh, the researchers about consciousness and parapsychology and NDEs and the Monroe Institute and, you know, but based on, on crisis and having that spiritual experience after a crisis, actually, Michael, you were just talking about, how you were reading this new thought book and what was it saying about, cause it's it a little just, red flaggy to me that of what you were saying. Oh yeah. Michael sets off all sorts of red flags. Well, these books were written. It's oh, is the that new that stash you found of the old, uh, yeah, it was like a stash that I got and it was just kind of, I just stumbled upon this stash of books, this box of books. And it's all this new thought stuff that's from like a hundred years ago. Yeah. And it's pretty interesting. And one of the, one of the books was talking about how you need to call upon when you are in crisis and that moment of fear. And then you fill your aura with that. And then you stretch that energy out into the aura. And then you can begin using that. Then you can begin using that. <laughs> there you go. Sorry, guys. Maybe I should talk. You right should up sing. Yeah. Or singing. You could be the singer in the band. 
Anyway, you base your spiritual practice on this one moment of fear that you pull into yourself and doesn't that bring I up trauma though like i, that's I would the whole worry thing. that's the like, bigger the trauma the better from what it's from what it's saying i don't know i i, I mean i only read like the first few chapters and it, it's you have to put your head your head in the right space you know not be judgmental not fall into it you know not suck it up as information that's true you have to kind of stand as a and watch the energy part of it or or yeah, I don't know. Experience yeah. that energy. I'm still thinking about the idea of it before I continue reading it, I guess. It reminds me of the song of the Immortal Beloved um, by Eric P. Antony that we had him in the studio a couple months ago. But he, he had the, part of his practice of meditation and was, was thinking about, I'm going to probably get this wrong, but to sort of paraphrase, like think about a, a, an experience, like a loving experience, and, and then focus on a couple core parts of your body. I think one was in the heart and one might've been in the head and maybe your, your root chakra and feel that and feel how that feels in there when you bring that emotion and then change the, the portion of the body that's in and then go to a different type of emotion, which I thought he had said fear. I thought there was like fear and love, but I didn't find when I read it, read it again, I didn't see that he had said the fear part, but well, I, I thought it was to contrast and see how that feels different in your body. And then that's a way yeah. to actually just get your, get recognize your false selves and bring out your authentic self somehow. I mean, it's way more complicated than that, but it seems like a great way to really get in touch with your emotions, you know, your mental, emotional self so that you can, you don't want to get stuck in just fear. You know, once you pull that in and, and this also went on to where you would do like stretching exercises to like push your aura out wow, and fill it more with this while you're kind of keep this energy in mind of whatever emotion it is. So yeah, it would be a good way to do it. I think is to, to be able to do it with different emotions instead of just get stuck in fear. Like you're saying, do it with love and yeah. Yeah. I was doing a fourfold breath, uh, like a box breathing thing with, with like four seconds up four seconds, like four, uh, in and then, hold it for four and then four seconds out. And then while picturing the student, the solar one, the solar activation one where you can feel it in and then bring it out through your aura as well. And, and yep. it's amazing how you can feel the energy shift in your body oh, as yeah, you do that. Sure. I mean, it's unbelievable how just it, it does physically yeah. change and you can feel it in your aura and I could cool. possibly extend it, expand it like That's that. That's like yeah. what the Brandon Powell stuff is doing. I think, right. Those yeah. breathing exercises are triggering the same thing just biologically. Yeah. Instead of mentally, mm-hmm. it's in that same sort of traumatic state. Well, I wouldn't say that those ones we were talking about are mental only. Oh. I think mental, I think mental has a, has a part of it. Mental's the, the trigger. The thought part of it is the, is the, uh, well, that's what I mean the by genesis mental. of it, but you know, I guess there's some breathing there probably too. Right. Right. Fucking pop. Don't filter. worry about your pop filter. I need my pop filter. Okay. It's a thing. Now the it'll be okay. It'll be all right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I'd like to read that. Speak, sure. Yeah. When you're done. Speaking of that, that kind of leads into like what we're talking about with that recovery dharma book. So I just narrated this recovery dharma book, which is basically healing from your addictions, whatever addictions, through Buddhist principles like the fourfold path and the mm-hmm. uh, and or sorry the eightfold the path. four truths and the eightfold path, the right. four noble truths, and about mm-hmm. suffering and. Mm-hmm. And just bringing your awareness around craving and detaching from that and like, you know, separating yourself from those thoughts. So we're going to put that 
that book. I think it's a couple hours. Is it a couple hours? We'll I'll put we'll like, put it in the free in the free feed. We were thinking about putting the black budget feed, but it's not really. It's a kind of an open source thing, like from a nonprofit. We so we don't want to get in any trouble with like. We don't want to get sued. Even if we tell sure. people like we'll give it to you if we email us and we'll give you the password, it's kind of a logistical problem. So we're gonna put that out in the regular feed, probably as a bonus episode. And then it'll go on to YouTube, and then it'll just be there for people that want to listen to this Recovery Dorm. It's a new book put out by uh, the board of directors that started out with Refuge Recovery, and they've got now two programs. So there's Refuge and Recovery Dharma, and it's a really, really cool book about addiction and healing from addiction. Narrated by the one and only Graham Dunlop. Yeah. Did a great job, buddy. Thanks. Way to go. So what do you got for us? The jingle board is not going to hold up. Well, um, why don't you do the, the oh, PO? We got, we got some something from our favorite listener in the PO Whoa. box. Is that what we're going with? What? Favorite listener? Yeah, man. The quarter, okay. We got a quarterly gift yeah, okay, yeah. in the PO box. Can't beat that. Uh, you know, I love Nikki. I do. But I don't think I could pick him as my favorite listener. I don't think I could pick my favorite listener. They're all my favorite. Yeah. Or at least there's a good 50 of them that are like, Right up there that I consider my friends. Uh, let's okay, let's go with it. Get out a pen and paper and write this down or a pencil. Why don't you send some physical mail to the Grimerica show at P.O. Box 16033. Next line. Uh-huh. 100-815, 17th Avenue, SW. Next line. Uh-huh. Calgary, Alberta. Next line. Uh-huh. Canada, next line, uh-huh. T2T space, 5H7, that's the P.O. box. Why don't you send Darren some dirty socks? Cause he's got a dirty sock fetish. Uh-huh. Why don't you send Graham some gold bowling? Cause he's got a gold bowling. So from our friend, Nikki the Dude, we got the Kelly Green Men Alien Legacy Revisited by Geraldine Sutton Stith. Oh, any greenbacks in the Green Men book? We got some greenbacks in here. We got a card. We got a uh, Grimerica. Oh, Don't nice. let them get you. Enjoy and believe. Oh, another autograph book. The poem book was also autographed. We've got a bruising with steak uh, thing in there. He must have got that when he seen the boys down in Cryptid Con. At yep. Cryptid Con, yeah. We got uh, the sticker that Grandma will probably steal and put on his laptop before anyone has a chance to say anything. About it, because it's how he rolls. Black Eyed Children sticker. We got some Nox Mente stuff, some Cat in the Box <laughs> stickers, <laughs> Cruising with Steak that's stickers. That's how come you guys, awesome. how come Cruising with Steak hasn't sent us any stickers yet? Oh, he sent two because he knew Graham would steal it. Thanks, Nikki. So thoughtful. Very thoughtful. Uh, yeah, he knows Graham well, too. Man, this book is just loaded with goodies. This is great. Oh, okay, I get this sticker, though. International Paranormal Museum and Research Center. It's a, actually it's a UFO, I guess. It looked like a shroom, but and it's he's a got UFO. a cat in the tractor beam. We've got an "I Want to Believe" postcard. Laminated. Thanks, Nikki. This is fantastic. Yeah. We got a goat man of Pope Lake, Lick, Pope Lick, Kentucky, and we got a. Hopkins, Hopkinsville. Gold. Oh, look at all these cryptid stickers! Eh? This is it. fantastic. Yep, he went around with his book and filled it with. He filled his book with goodies, as he always does. Awesome. We appreciate it. We appreciate you, Nikki. Thank you, sir. Obviously, would have loved to have been there. All our favorite podcasters there, Cat in the Box, and 
Cruz and Mistake and Knox Mende and probably Cat gonna forget a couple there. there. Yeah, was Justin, Justin was there. there. Yeah, Justin was there too. Ah, I didn't know he made it down there. Yeah. Where you go, Justin? Yep. All right, thanks, Nikki. What else you got, buddy? I got a couple quotes for you. We'll mm. jump right into the quotes. Let's jump into the quotes. All right. Uh, favorite jingle. It's the profound quote of the week. Darren, can you guess it? It's the profound quote of the week. Can you guess the human who spoke it or wrote it down? So I try to pick them that relative to the episode, you know, like a little bit relevant. Relevant. What did I say? Relative. I mean, it could work. <laughs> I probably could have left. It but alone. it's hard, eh? Because when you go to the <laughs> when you go to the octopus of global control, it's pretty heavy, right? Yeah. You know, chrysalis crisis. There's not too many that are applicable in there, so I got a nasty one from that. And then uh, this one's from an end to upside down thinking. I guarantee you, Charlie Robinson agrees with my "they're all fascist" assessment. Probably. No one physiological or psychological model by itself explains all the common features of near-death experiences. The paradoxical occurrence of heightened, lucid awareness and logical thought processes during a period of impaired cerebral perfusion, like blood flow to the brain, raises particularly perplexing questions for our current understanding of consciousness and its relation to brain function. A clear sensorium and complex perceptual process during a period of apparent clinical death Challenge the concept that consciousness is localized exclusively in the brain. Joe Dispenza. <laughs> Close. Close. You know him and, you know Joe and, uh, and who's the other one that I, that I like that I want to give on the show? Uh, Greg Braden. Braden. Yeah, Greg Braden. And the oh, guy from. Dean, uh, I was thinking Dean Raiden. Oh, okay. Well, I've been trying know. to get Greg Braden on the show. And the other guy. Well, I almost had him a few years back. Do you remember? Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be, and then it fell apart. I got uh, Dispenza on the waiting list, but he said to check back in early 2020. And who's the emotional guy that I always forget his name from Kiwi Land? Um, Whoa. He's hey? getting belligerent. Do you remember who that? Uh, Bruce Lipton? No point. Yeah. Bruce Lipton's uh, there, too. They're all at the oh, same no, conference sorry, that's in who, November. That that's who I have lined up. Not... Uh, Greg Braden? Not, no, no, I didn't say Which Greg Which conference Braden. is it? I said someone else. I, I can't remember the name of it. It's coming up in October, November down in California. You know that the, uh, what's his name? Lipton? Bruce Lipton? Michael guessed his email address and it worked. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it. Yeah. Well, it's kind of obvious. Bruce at Lipton.com or no? <laughs> you shouldn't probably say that on the show. <laughs> It's easier to guess than you think, and then he's going to get a wacky email. So this, is, uh, this quote was from Dr. Bruce Grayson, Professor Emeritus of Psychi Psychiatry and Neurobehavior Sciences at Universal University of Virginia. We rushed to get that in at the end. Yeah. Are you going to do a Charlie Robinson one, too? Yeah. It's a little heavier, though, and I don't know if I'm going to pronounce all the chemicals that are oh you got it quote. picked out already oh i got it picked out yeah it takes me a while to pick out these things really gotta make sure they're relative <laughs> or at least <laughs> at least second cousins 
Uh, neurodevelopmental disabilities, including autism, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, dyslexia, and other cognitive impairments, affect millions of children worldwide, and some diagnoses seem to be increasing in frequency. Industrial chemicals that injure the developing brain are among the known causes for this rise in prevalence. In 2006, we did a systematic review and identified five industrial chemicals as developmental neurotoxins, lead, methylmercury, polychlorinated biphenols, and arsenic, and toline. Toline. So since 2006, epidemiological studies have documented six additional developmental, developmental neurotoxins, manganese fluoride, chlorophyllus. Oh, see, I'm not going to ever... Read that one. Dichlora defa cheka. All right. Cheka lofenane. And then tetrochlorethylene. We know it's interesting. And the polybromated diphenyl ethers. And that's from Dr. Philip Grandjean and, Phil, and, and Philip J. Langrigan, <laughs> MD, in The Lancet. So that's like one I of tried the most to bail prestigious. I know. Thanks, buddy. But I really, that's got the most letters I've ever seen in a name and, and a word, and I can't do it. I was uh, reading something the other day. That was from The Lancet in 2014. I was reading something the other day that was talking about... Putting fluoride back in the water? Don't tell me. No, actually, I was listening... I was Funny you mentioned that. I was listening to something on the local radio the other day of some lady harping against why they shouldn't put fluoride back in the water. Because if you really break down the numbers, Edmonton has more cavities. Really? Yeah. So she was arguing to not put it back in? Yeah. Thank God there's people arguing on that side. Well, no, just recently it's come out, I mean, it's come out that it really does reduce the IQ. <laughs> so a lot of people now are just like, oh, shit, we need, to, we need to get that out of the water. Well, when I quote the top, it's in the Lancet top 10 neurotoxin, this, that's probably the, no, is that the 10? Anyway. I don't think that's the 10. I was reading something that was saying that. It's supposed to be the top 10 neurotoxins, so I, that, don't, you know, uh, I don't care about safe amounts. Like, we shouldn't be putting that in our bodies. No. Well, no. It was never a good idea to start putting fluoride in the water. Like, where was someone like, I have a great idea. Because it's industrial waste, dude. Get it's industrial it. waste. Yeah, you know that's a... And that's what they did on in, in Nazi Germany to... to affect people right i mean i don't think that's a con- i don't think that's a conspiracy theory i think that's really like what they did anyway oh yeah i was reading a study the other from. day that said 70 percent uh foster kids are 70 percent more likely to develop asthma than a kid that is raised by one of its parents you know who that was that was gaber mate gaber what gaber. does that have to do with with asthma well, you were mentioning asthma. What does that have to do with asthma? I don't know. He's connecting it to trauma, childhood trauma to asthma. Because he was actually citing, it all started because Gaber Mate, or Gaber, has, fin- <laughs> has finally come around to psychedelics. Really? Because of a woman he met that had a skin condition. I can't remember exactly what it was called, but anyway, it was a death sentence. It was killing her. It was one of those things you use cortisol for for as long as you can, but oh. then eventually that stops working and it kills you. And uh, she went. Well, I don't know if cortisol kills you, but no, the disease does. Oh. Cortisol only works for so long, yeah. but eventually the disease, oh, okay. yeah, yeah. some sort of skin degenerative <laughs> disease. But anyway, she went down to the jungle because she got bedridden and was ready to die. So she went down there to do an ayahuasca journey to try and come to terms with her death. And instead, she gets like a 50% reduction in her symptoms. 
And so now Gabber's starting to put together that any condition, anything that we can treat with adrenaline and cortisol could at some level be more of a, some like an emotional trauma or something like that. Psychosomatic. Psychosomatic more so than anything else. So he's bringing all that. It was, it was interesting to, him, to hear him talk about that anyway. And he, he mentioned that he's, he's now forced to fully, um, fully take relook at his well, stats on psychedelic be, that'll research. That'll be interesting if he goes down deep down that, because especially now with all the studies they're doing and, you know, whether it's MDMA or psilocybin or the, the toad stuff. And I mean, even like they're doing that. We had, uh, well, I'm working on Stamets again. I was just talking to him, his people about getting him on the show. I mean, his story about curing his stutter mm-hmm. with the, well on psilocybin was insane. I actually heard a story just the other day from, a woman who cured her driving anxiety by focusing on it during a psilocybin trip. So it's like definitely not out there. We got to get the Remember we had Jane on? on Remember we had Jane on? Okaya Shin from LA. She's a yoga teacher from LA and she's doing that. Is it Campbell? The toad one? Uh, But the one using that psychedelic for addiction treatment as well. And that's working for people down there. I mean, it's, it's. We should try it where you tell me all of your problems. And then you do a really heroic dose. And then while you're just sh- totally shroomed out, then I go through them and say, hey, do you want to talk about this one? Do you want to talk about this one? And then you there can could really be something to that. Those. There could you really could, be something to that. And then you come out of it and you're kind of like, whoa, I need some water and give you some water and be like, now do you want to talk about this one? Let's do you first. Oh, man, that would take forever. I'll be the shaman. I guess that's kind of what shamans do, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a modern day psych, it's like a mix between like a, a modern day doctor and a modern day psychotherapist, and probably all that sort of rolled into one with less uh, SRIs mm. and other crazy pharmaceuticals. I mean, I think there's some real deep, deep abilities with the shamanic. I mean, there are you know ent- entities and helping out with you know oof, all kinds speaking of attachments of, and stuff like that. Speaking I mean, of entities, I went out Sasquatch hunting. On Friday. Speaking of really? that, I've got a mushroom and a Sasquatch email to read to you. Okay, you read that first. Okay. And then I'll get to what my What kind of firepower Sasquatch. did you take to go Sasquatch? I didn't take any. I wasn't thank allowed God. to bring any weaponry. Good, thank God. I had to promise not to bring any weapons. How come you, how come you did that for Jason? You'd never not take your gun with me. Well, I don't have a gun. Oh, okay. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> oh yeah, Canadian. <laughs> Do you have a bow and arrow? No, I gave Michael my gun during the big. Uh, really? That's yeah, should, oh, okay. We should actually go shooting sometime. We should. Yeah, it was like when the igloo almost got taken out. It's like shooting season right now, or something too. When the igloo almost got taken out by the cops that time, I got the gun. The fuck oh, out really? of Dodge. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> freaked him out. Yeah. <sighs> and now another edition of the Dry American Goodies. So, do you remember, I don't know if I ever got into the synchronicity part about the, the set when I went out looking for Sasquatch with Jason and Brian at that uh, hot spot there, close by in Calgary. When you played the snoring? I played the snoring, yeah. So the next day I went again, right? Didn't we play it on and, the show? Yeah, but the next day I went. But I don't think I got into this part of it. Remember I told you I found mushrooms in the trees? Yeah. Yeah. So I found all these, like, some of them were, like, just picked. 
mushrooms sitting up in the trees, like big shrooms, like four inches in diameter. Not magic, but sitting and tucked up in these branches. I was like, what? Why? How do you know they weren't magic? I don't, I, I don't know. Actually, I only know of the one Liberty Bell type that There's we used. Two hundred different. Kinds. Yeah, I know. So maybe they are, but I don't think they are. And then there was some older ones as well that seemed like they'd been there for a while. But <clears throat> that day, Brian and and Jason were they tried little shrooms and they were walking around the forest down there <laughs> that day. That was them then. For sure. And then I <laughs> found no, no, I found the sh- mushrooms. I spotted them, and then uh, that night we released the mushroom episode, the psilocybin summit one. So, oh, really? so it, Brian was emailing me like, did you understand the synchronicity part of all that? Anyways, I get an email from a listener. Hey, Graham and Darren. My uncle and his girlfriend run the Wild Bird General Store in Edmonton. They recently posted about mushrooms wedged in trees. Apparently, it's the squirrels. Really? <laughs> yeah. Squirrels. Oh. Damn squirrels. My friend Lance recently designed and painted a mural in Alberta. In an Alberta school, including Sasquatch as part of his indigenous heritage, the stuff of legends. And speaking of following your intuitive voice, I kept thinking I should come to CAC in Bryce Canyon. I was conceived there in a VW camper van, (laughs) thus the name Bryce, and born in Alberta. I don't want to miss the opportunity, but it would have to be on the cheap. I went through a breakup, a move, (laughs) and soon I'll have to move again. Sounds familiar. However, my knack for manifesting things has recently been confirmed again. I was invited as a guest on a cruise. I really need a vacation. So I feel it's the perfect time to reach out to you guys. Every time you say Bryce, my ears perk up. Bryce. I was once there to visit in the early 2000s at such a beautiful, mystical place. Is there a spot left for me? I'd even sleep on the floor. I could pay the deposit on a credit card, but I'm hoping for a cheap spot as I'll be saving up between now and then for the transportation. I'm an artist, a musician, and performer, so I could offer some music and an artsy perspective. I'd really love to learn more about the Wim Hof stuff. That's the breathing that Brandon will be doing while we're there. My first piano teacher is studying it and recently did a retreat, and I'm totally curious to watch the skies. Do you have an artist in residence yet? All of this seems synchronous to me. Maybe not an 8.42, but perhaps a 4. Strong enough to pull me to write this message. Hope you're both doing really well. I enjoy listening to Darren's trip report. And I'm really looking forward to the interview. Love and light and all that shit, Bryce. Uh, <clears throat> Thanks, buddy. Thank That's an you. awesome email. It is. I I'll, I'll show that. you a mural, a picture of the mural there, Darren. It's pretty funky. He's got Sasquatch and a teepee in the back and a beaver and an eagle and a buffalo and a rainbow and a bear. So email me, Bryce. Let's see what we can do. We can talk. We'll talk about it. Because you know who actually contacted me the other day? Is uh, I actually got it was uh, he's in Edmonton, yeah. Well, that's good. So I get this email the other day and it's got a picture of me in it. Oh, that's when you lost your hat looking for my hat. I knew that, yep. And it was from Sean. Then he was the fellow that was there the first day we got, he came there with us. And anyway, uh, he was our first day pass. He bought a day pass, he's gonna sleep in his van down the road. Down by the river? Down by the river, yeah. <laughs> so maybe you could sleep in the van with them. Uh, because we do still have the day passes available. So that would probably be the most economical way to get there would be to get a day pass, the day pass ticket for 250 bucks, And then I think there's like local camping for like 25 bucks a night. Hmm. 
because we're all like, I can't cram anyone else into, there's no more spots to cram people. Yeah. We're all crammed up. Well, that's good news that we're sold out already. Yeah. I had another email too, but I can't seem to find it. Uh, Keep talking. Keep talking. Have you guys been? To, did you go through Bryson Zion? Have you been there? Before? No, I have. <clears throat> no, I haven't. I don't we like to have. throw conferences in places we've never been before, yeah, and totally. that are nearly impossible to get to to cess out before. I had a I had a seventy seven West Folia that I drove through there. <laughs> really? That's I don't awesome. think I created any anybody, but <laughs> it was a lot of fun. We had a. It was. It's. I have so many cool pictures because when you have a an old cool vehicle that you're this yellow and it's has the background of either all the hoodoos of Bryce or the yellow and red, like or Zion yeah. is just an amazing, yeah. beautiful place. Yeah. Oh yeah. I can't wait. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. There's like one spot left right now. So if you think you're going, you better, uh, email me, Darren I can't find this email. Someone had sent me a big, long email, but I can't find it. So, so also check out, Cat contact at the cabin.com, right? Contact at the cabin.com. I can't That's believe you it. got that. What you think there's like a lot of contact at the cabin? Well, yeah, contact is a popular thing these days, you know. Contact, ET, all that stuff. That's not what we mean, but still, contact uh, at the ca- well. I still can't believe we didn't call it contact at the canyon. Just a major fail, epic fail. We'll get it next well, year. Well, it's still kind of a cabiny thing, though. Well, it is still a cabiny thing, but we could have. I think we got to always. I mean, what are you going to do? Call it Castle when we go to Castle? Contact at the Castle? Yeah, totally. 100%. We can change a website every time, or? No, it's still. The brand is still Contact at the Cabin. Okay. That's well, the name of the company. Maybe Contact at the Castle is not that much. Oh, it's a couple bucks a year, but I don't want to. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get into that. Uh, what else? Just support, support the show. Support the show. Yeah. Support the, support the show. We love you. We need your support. slash support We couldn't do it without you. We can't do it without you. You guys are the grease that keeps the wheels turning that are America and we love you for it. Uh, we love you even more if you're a supporter. You get a little extra love. You know, I know that sounds kind of materialistic, but uh, it's more like an energy flow. And some people don't even use um, cash. Some people use art. Some people use music. Some people use reviews or feedback or whatever the fuck. Yeah, reviews. Email us, graham at grahamerica.com. That's as right. Well. Lots He's, of reviews. Reviews are a good thing. We should push them every once in a while. That's right. So if you've enjoyed 375 episodes, it's probably time for a little energy exchange. We prefer the cash kind, but we'll take whatever kind we can get. Just don't curse us. Uh, anything else? That's about it. Enjoy the chat with Frank Pasciutti.
All right, so tonight we've got Frank Pesciutti with us, PhD. He's a licensed clinical psychologist and certified hypnotherapist in Charlottesville, Virginia. And he's also the author of a great book I just finished reading. It's Chrysalis Crisis, How Life's Ordeals Can Lead to Personal and Spiritual Transformation. And he's got quite the bio here, but I'm going to let Frank uh, get into a little bit of his background. He's been working with places like the Monroe Institute and the Associated Clinicians of Virginia, so uh, I don't want to get too deep into that yet, Frank, but uh, thanks for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, like I said, it was a great book. I, li- I really liked the second half, actually, when it got into a little bit more of the, the spiritual stuff. But uh, it's kind of like, kind of parallels the, the journey as well, really. Um, but maybe before we get into, into the book and, uh, and why, you, why you wrote that and your process, maybe we can talk a little bit, just give, you, give us a little bit of your bio and... Uh, because it's quite, you know, quite related to um, to the topic. Sure. Well, I uh, gained an interest in the, the the material in the second half of the book, which is all the intuitive and spiritual experiences early in my life, right? Having exposure through my family, uh, and then it wasn't until I sort of like looked at different areas to sort of study and work that I realized that I had an interest in metaphysics and parapsychology and uh, just understanding a lot of these uh, anomalous experiences uh, that I had heard about in my family. And so I got into psychology and um, uh, thinking psychology would be the best field for me to, 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 to understand all that, you know. And uh, so I got into um, clinical psychology and, um, you know, it was an interesting place to be because uh, early on, I guess I got invested in being seen as a credible uh, clinical psychologist and was a little... Once I got invested with my PhD, I was a little bit like leading a double life. wasn't sure, you know, how much I wanted to like show my hand and didn't want to get marginalized out of the gate, you know. Uh, so anyway, nevertheless, early in my even in my training, I did my training up in Michigan State University, and um, I had a fellow walk in the office who had had an NDE back in 1978, and um, he was thought to be when he entered the a clinical system and uh, another person did an intake on him and they thought that he might be psychotic the year before i started the program i actually lived in a house with schizophrenics in newark new jersey which is some of my earlier clinical training but when i heard them say that he came in announcing that he thought he was the angel of death and you know that doesn't come off well with a bunch of <laughs> psychologists in a counseling center but he did say he had an nde and it wasn't all that familiar to people so i thought i'm going to if, you know, I looked over at my supervisor. I thought, let me pick this guy up. I would really be interested in, in understanding, you know, particularly in the context of where I was working, uh, what was going on with him. And if he wasn't psychotic, if there wasn't anything that would be attributable that would indicate pathology or psychopathology, I'd be interested in how they would uh, support me working with him with that experience. So I, I read the book uh, Life, uh, Life After Life by Raymond Moody, yeah. who also was from Charlottesville, Virginia, and was part of the program down here that I uh, consult with, collaborate with at the University of Virginia. And um, my supervisor was really good, both my individual supervisor and my group supervisor. My group supervisor was familiar with the Monroe Institute, which I wasn't at the time. Hmm. And I knew of Edgar Casey and his work, who's also in Virginia. And my individual supervisor, when I shared with her that I was interested in reincarnation and all these different things, she said, oh, you need to get familiar with the group that's in Charlottesville, Virginia, that researches NDEs and reincarnation and mediumship and, and parapsychology in general. 
So that kind of oriented me down here. And it also became an interesting case for me because the fellow was grounded. And what I came to learn years later was that people who have NDEs frequently open up and have more capacity or more inclination to have other psychic experiences. Yeah. Did not know that at the time. Somebody who could have clued me in on that, Bruce Grayson, who's a friend of mine here and previously was the director of the program here at UVA. He was only 85 miles down the road. We were both earlier in our careers. He was at University of Michigan. Would have, wish I knew that then. I would have got supervision from him. Yeah, yeah. So what was right. that What was that uh, organization in Virginia that you that she told you to go talk so to? The, then, it, right now, it's called the Division of Perceptual Studies. It's actually in the medical school at the University of Virginia. And it's been there since the late 60s. Mm-hmm. And by the Ian Stevenson first started doing uh, reincarnation research yep. with children, children who remember past lives. And they have a great staff. They were very uh, aligned with the people at Duke University, the J.B. Ryan people, who the guy who coined the term ESP. And there were other programs in the country, like at Princeton. Yeah, the pairs. Yeah. Right. And so Virginia has managed to keep their program going. I mean, a lot of these other programs were a little bit like not sure they wanted to have uh, faculty and people interested in these areas be aligned with them. Yeah. But UVA is, is, is uh, blessed to have a lot of really good pretty uh, high-powered uh, researchers with good credentials, and they handle themselves very well. So they have really been a positive uh, reflection on the university. Yeah. Yeah, you kind of touched on it a little earlier, but one of the questions I had right off the bat was kind of a personal question about about the transition. Or And you mentioned the time, like that NDE, that guy that had that NDE that came in seemed to be a, a transition point probably career-wise for you, but what was it like going from like interest in the metaphysics to then, then going into this PhD program where you kind of had to play by the rules a little bit and live in this materialistic paradigm? And then, I mean, exactly. I, I guess I don't even have a specific question, but what was that like for you and then coming out of that again? Well, I think I, think I kind of showed my hand a little bit in that program. I came into the doctoral program with 10 people, and they, initially uh, I did my first official doctoral presentation on meditation and altered states of consciousness. And I was identified as the Jungian because I was very interested in Jung, who seemed to provide me with the most credible bridge over into uh, the you know, anomalous and the various things and, and alternative interpretations of how the unconscious worked. So, uh, but I was, I treaded, you know, in a, in a cautious way. Interestingly, that case that I was telling you about at one point, see, I had all this Upbringing, which I don't know if you ever heard of the Rosicrucians, but they're an organ, yeah. non-sectarian organization that my mother, two uncles, and a cousin they influenced my family. Even though we were growing up in a pretty 1950s Catholic, you know, like uh, environment in the inner city of Newark, New Jersey, uh, so that was so. Anything I heard through the traditional uh, Christian Catholic uh, sources, my mom or uncles would say, "Well, there's alternative." understandings of how miracles work, you know, and there's other ways in which we understand how the mind works. So for me, I was, uh, it was already diluted a little bit, and I was fascinated by all that. But Jung seemed to have gotten the closest to be willing to walk that line. Even with Freud, he got in trouble because Freud said you need to stay away from all that occult stuff and all that other, that stuff out there. But for me, I, I think what happened is at one point, I wasn't sure whether I was overly indoctrinated myself. And I thought before they set me loose on society, maybe I should, uh, present this case to my faculty, uh, the people who would, you know, endorse me moving to the next step. Um, and so I put together a, a committee of people, and I was very supportive. And these were people who were 
well-known and researched, and even a guy who was a behavioralist who I thought would probably be the least open to like uh, the, uh, the the kinds of intuitive uh, things I was looking at. But they were just say they said, you know, just present your case and back it up and support it with you know research and you know just go ahead and you know move in directions that feel right for you. Um, so that was helpful for me. I felt encouraged by that. Yeah, that's really. Really interesting to hear, and it's great that you that you you know you kind of squirmed into that uh, that environment without having to participate that much in the materialistic paradigm. But like, but it seems odd to me that that that, that that's happening. It's, it feels like that's happening in the background and underground with people like you that are doing this this research. Yet we're still living in this this materialistic paradigm where, where the metaphysical stuff just isn't accepted, or at least by the people that have influence. Like, what do you think about where we've come since you've been through that? Like, are we, are we changing that at all? I mean, your book is a a prime example of one of the, you know, one of the things that will help that change, but. Well, yeah, I think it, it is slowly changing. It's a, there's a book that was put out by a number of my colleagues out of this program called beyond physicalism. And uh, they had put out a book before that called uh, Irreducible Mind. Both of them are kind of tomes. But there's a lot of research in the Irreducible Mind book that shows how long and how much research has been done in the field of parapsychology and examining anomalous experiences by credible people around the world. A lot yeah. of people still kind of poo-poo that stuff. I think there, what happens is I think since the... Uh, Quantum physicists seem to be the hardest science that's able to try to offer some explanation. When you move into start looking at consciousness, I think you start opening the door to ways in which consciousness works. And beyond physicalism actually takes, and I tend to support this, an, a, a, an approach that suggests that consciousness gives rise to the material world. Yeah. That it's found. Yeah. And that's a little bit, it's a little bit of a challenge right now because with the, in the advent of all the work that's been going on with you know, uh, technology and fMRIs and the ways in which we're looking for all these places in the brain where everything seems to function, you know, my people will say, well, that's correlational. You can say, when I have this experience, this part of my brain emits electrical current or emits heat, and these are picked up by these various these various measures, but it doesn't suggest cause. Exactly. It's, like, it's just like that God helmet argument. Like when they say, oh, well, we can induce uh, NDEs or OBEs by putting this uh, helmet on you. And it, that doesn't mean that that's what produces all. That doesn't mean that your, your NDEs or OBEs are produced by some external thing like that. Well, the, the, the beauty of NDEs or your brain. is when people are flatlined and they're clinically dead, they seem to still be able to exhibit perceptual functions and they have cognitive functions so you're saying well what's thinking you know and uh one of the fellows i allude to i forget his name now but he had said you know just because we think when we have brains doesn't mean we can't think when we don't have them there's no proof to say that you know when people come back and say i had this these experiences like eben alexander who consulted with us and who's uh who's someone who also worked with the monroe institute had that experience you may know his book yeah. uh, of heaven Eben, you know, Eben had an amazing experience, and he was, you know, amazed that he even came back, never mind maintain or resume his extremely high level of functionality. So um, so I think the NDE started getting people to start looking at, wow, if people are considered dead and you can't explain away these uh, experiences through an anoxia, lack of oxygen, yeah. or all the other ways materialists have tried to dis- discount it, yeah. then must be a way in which mind works outside of the body. Yeah. 
which can then open the door for concept, for uh, ideas of survival. And who's to say the mind Re can't reincarnate? Yeah. Without and come back, and yeah. so it opens the door for reincarnation. Yeah. And so it, it, it's, a, it's a battle, though, because we're so, like, when you think of Jung's notion of the way, the two key ways we perceive through sensing, which is objective functions of sensing, of smelling, touching, tasting, and intuition, which is much more by way of the unconscious, these are more intuitive kinds of experiences. They're hard to measure with your typical tangible measures. You know, you can't, you can't say, I can, I can hold on to measure way you know, whatever, some of these phenomena. They have to be experienced in a lot of ways. Yeah. Do you think yeah. trying to measure them and bring in MRIs and all this other technology, in a way, I wonder if that can't be, um, I don't know what the word is, is but almost well, turning it off. I mean, we, all, we could be beating out our own placebo influence by just logically... Um, Trying to measure it. We, well, that... we can just logic it out of existence, I think, you know, because a placebo, I think, in itself relies on a certain amount of belief and well, faith. Yeah. So when you when you convince yourself that, that it doesn't exist, then it's not going to exist. I mean, I often think that, you know, a thousand or two thousand or ten thousand years ago, I mean, you probably had even more control over those types of things because you had so much less you know, and that's why these occults, what we call, you know, this occult stuff has creeped forward because, you know, some forgotten age knew all about that stuff. And we've sort yep. of forgot it and we've got to deal with this placebo effect. It's a thing we've got to deal with and we better be careful because we're going to deal with it right out of existence. And all of a sudden, you know, we're going to evolve to a point where we've lost some control of reality. Well, you know, it's an interesting point you make, and actually there is research. A woman by the name of Gertrude Smeidler, who was a clinical psychologist and passed away a few years ago, did some really good research on what she called the sheep-goat effect, which kind of fits with what you're saying. And one is when they would get a group of people together before they, they were going to give them some what they call like side testing, you know, guessing cards, throw, throw of dice, different ways in which they can measure psychic capacity. Before they actually uh, gave them the test, if you will, they took a survey to find out the extent of belief that they had that it was possible that they could do it <laughs> versus how much they were skeptical and thought it impossible. And the interesting result of that was the people who thought it was possible and considered that, you know, that psychic abilities are real, they scored significantly higher than chance. But interestingly, the people who had strong disbelief in that area ended up scoring significantly below chance. So the mind and their state of beliefs affected them in either direction. And, and when you talk about what you're saying is maybe we have gotten, if we get too entrenched in only believing in the one-dimensional world of materiality, we may, we may lose some of those intuitive psychic functions. And, and you're absolutely right that um, back in the days, the shamans when we didn't have all the ways in which we can like come to know our world or know where the buffalo were running, the shamans were the ones who may have used, <laughs> had the psychic ability, who kept the tribes following the food, knowing when to avoid storms. They were probably using all these different faculties that were more adaptive and enabled us to stay alive. It makes you and wonder that, if it makes you wonder if that's purposeful well, in a way, well, like why we're pu push getting pushed down this road so we do lose our abilities. Well, it could just be accidental too, because we're paying. Uh, the other thing I'd ask you is like, we seem to be entering, and I'm not gonna, 
I'm going to try not to overgeneralize here, but we're sort of entering um, an era where we've got uh, a, a generation of, of young adults that don't seem super equipped to deal with the real world um, in some ways. In other ways, they're highly adapted, but in other ways, they just can't deal with it. And I wonder if it's um, because we've, we've spent so much time focused on IQ for the last hundred years and zero attention to EQ. Um, well, that's I'm with you. And actually, in my book, I start off with the conventional considerations. I, I look at through the I, I, I use crisis as the, the lens through which I try to amplify each of the key areas I examine only because crisis seems to bring it more to our attention. You know, suffering gets your attention, in other words. But the idea that, for instance, one of the interesting things which you can use brain research and, and um, is, is that there's certain, like with an EEG, there are certain brain waves that are conducive to psychic capacity. So, for instance, when you're, you and I, right now, as we're dialoguing, if we were on an EEG, we were producing what would be called beta. If we fell asleep, we would produ be producing delta. Okay, we can measure that. Now, if you're in a brown study driving down a highway and you look up and you realize you went 50 miles and you don't remember that, you were kind of in a slight trance, kind of the brown study is called alpha. There's another state of consciousness, and some of this is generated, you, you mentioned earlier, Grant, the idea of going to the Monroe Institute. Some of it can be generated, you can generate theta, which is a, on the edge of sleep. It's not quite sleep. You're still mind awake, but body asleep. And there seems to be a state of consciousness there that is conducive to being able to uh, perceive the very subtle impressions of psychic functioning or spirit directly. So, for instance, in the work of Ian Stevenson here at University of Virginia, people say, well, why do these children remember past lives? Would it, well, if you look at a child, frequently they're in that magical world. There are many more predominantly in theta as a, gener as a more predominant state. And interestingly, people who don't, some of the research, People who don't leave theta behind and develop more beta sometimes are identified as attention deficit disorder. I, I took uh, uh, some training in, in neurofeedback, which was actually um, helped us understand how to get somebody to start strengthening the development of those other brainwave functions that you and I just grew into naturally. So um, if, if anything about the generation that I'm concerned about is if we get too focused on the physical and too distracted by always looking at our iPhones and things, uh, there's an element of never being in downtime and just being still, just being, you know, and that it's those, it's those moments when you're in the shower and you're just, you know, you're just kind of like being, you know, your mind's able to be free. Meditation, of course, is, a, is, is an attempt to try to get into that mind awake, body asleep, not focused on, on anything. And, and these are ways in which you can enhance, and, and I'm a hypnotherapist, also there's a lot, of, there's some research out there about how altered states under hypnosis can be conducive, particularly uh, in the idea of what you were saying, Darian, if I suggest to somebody that maybe they have the capacity to do something, sometimes they can do it. And the hypnosis mo mostly is really focused attention. But there's some good research to show that if I, if somebody's highly hypnotizable, I can suggest to them that they smell something that smells really bad and just basically put a glass of water under their nose. So, you know, uh, you know, we have the capacity within us to bring forth a lot of these experiences, but you know, we need to learn how to access them. Yeah. That reminds me of the relaxation response. Like how many scientists or, or people have had problems that they've solved after they 
stop the work and they relax, whether it's in the shower or, or lying down, having a nap, and that's when the answer comes. Did you ever hear about uh, Thomas Edison, what he used to do? Thomas Edison would sit in a chair with two steel balls, in e one steel ball in each hand, and he'd be relaxed, and he'd go into a state, and underneath his hands, he'd have a bucket. And so what he tried to do in the afternoon, they say, is that he would try to get into that state, not completely falling asleep, and if he did, the balls would release and fall into the bucket and wake <laughs> him up. So he tried to hang on that edge because he was toiling, toiling, toiling all day. And he knew enough even then to know that if he went into that edge of sleep state, he would have his ahas. Wow. And, people walk, and that's something, the guy was not only brilliant as an inventor, but he knew how to manipulate and work with states of consciousness. And I have a friend who's, a, I consider him the Michael Jordan of, of remote viewing, uh, Joe McMonagall. He's oh, a, a key yeah. person down down here in the Monroe Institute, and he'll often say, you know, that he goes into that altered state and then just uh, just opens and experiences what he needs to get in, how he needs to get information. Yeah. So that's the thing that, you know, we, we need to aspire to. You don't have to be, like, constantly zoned out. Well, is, is, is that where you got the part about physical... Um physical exercise and, and health is from Joe. Cause I remember Joe talking about how it was important to, you know, to be physical healthy as well then to enable the metaphysics to, well, you know, to. Uh, yeah, no, I think you're right. And, and, um, back in, you know, the early days when I started doing yoga and meditating back in the early seventies, my understanding of yoga was that it was to, uh, uh relax the body, stretch the body, I'll start beginning to enter into a calm state for the purposes of meditating. So, for instance, if you have your body is healthy and it's, you know, if you're blessed and you don't have things calling your attention when you try to meditate, you would say, I don't want, you know, sometimes you're going to have to deal with, you know, anything that comes to mind. It might be even sexual energy. It might be um, aches and pains or preoccupations with the physical. If I'm worrying about money or anything else, you know. So there's a way in which, you know, when I run through these 10 keys in the book, I then double back at the end and say, now, if there's an element of mastery of the physical, it's so you can let it be. You can, like, when you enter meditation, you're not preoccupied on all the things of the physical dimension, your body, your money, you know, everything. And so that you can be still. And, and uh, Darian, you mentioned about e I e e IQ. There's also, there's the EQ, emotional intelligence. There's the there's the uh, social intelligence. There's moral intelligence. The more we develop these areas, the more we are able to allow them to contribute to putting us in the frame of mind that opens us to the more subtle impressions of spirit. That's um, like a mini synchro because I'm in the middle of reading the book Social Intelligence. I'm, I'm sorry, say that again? I'm in the middle of reading the book Social Intelligence. It's on my nightstand. Yeah, Daniel Goleman's book? Yeah, that's yeah. right. He did a good job on that, and he did a good job on the emotional intelligence. And, it, and if you look I've at read that, yeah. Um, so here's an interesting thing. You, you brought up Edison, and Edison is, uh, the interesting thing about Edison is, is he was a big endorser and uh, helped, helped Napoleon Hill write the book Think and Grow Rich, which basically huh. talks about being able to settle into that. I mean, he, he uses it as being able to get your, your manifestations or your ideas or whatever from your, from your conscious mind into your subconscious mind, which to me is sort of into those emotions. And that's kind of what it goes into, um, I forget his name already, mm -hmm. Goleman. Goleman's work about emotions are running the show and maybe emotions, you know, he kind of talks about 
being able to trick your conscious manifestations into your subconscious emotional mind. And that's when it can actually talk to the whatever it is, the the universe universe and manifest what you want. Well, you know, clearly I'll, I'll be honest with you, even as a therapist, I, I put a lot of, um, value and weight on people getting in touch and experiencing feelings more than just thinking feelings more than saying, I think I'm angry, but I never really feel it. And a lot of times I believe like one of the blocks for being able to move into that state of stillness is the turbulence of unconscious emotions. So if you're not, so sometimes when people start meditating, things will percolate up into awareness, stuff that they usually don't pay attention to, maybe even stuff that they've repressed. But a lot of that needs to be cleared. So you would say, I want to be a clear channel with all my feelings open and accessible to me. Mm. And, uh, and that's easier said than done because I think we're all working on that. I mean, it's, some of us have been raised to be okay with some feelings and not others, or maybe some things overwhelmed us and we repress them or push them out of awareness. But when you start being still, anything that is seeking healing or trying to work its way out uh, will come to mind, but that needs to be cleared. Like there's the concept of a spiritual bypass which um, I put in the book, and I thought it was fascinating when I first read that, the idea that people who have issues, you might say, more conventional kinds of issues, will escape off into like, you know, some kind of ashram or some kind of like place where they can do a lot of spiritual work, and yet they find that they're held back because there's a lot of feelings, a lot of thoughts, a lot of beliefs, a lot of stuff that they haven't addressed that we would say fall more into the realm of conventional kinds of areas that we work on to try to develop ourselves, whether it's in therapy or out of therapy. But then when you clear those areas up, they can actually be harnessed to enhance your, your, you know, your, your quest to try to open up to more spiritual experiences. So um, it does still require growing all, all along the path here. I keep coming across people that, that, that can't meditate because they say they, well, they say they can't meditate or they don't either that or they don't want to meditate because they say they, they can't or, or they don't, um, they can't focus or they can't. And I guess that's probably one of the main reasons why. So if somebody sticks with that and lets that stuff come up and lets it go or however you process that, how long do you, or I I know it's an, an impossible question, but Sooner enough, it'll it'll start to dissipate, and then you can kind of enter more of a peaceful meditative state. I agree. Yes, uh, they call it early on monkey mind. Your yeah, mind wants to jump, treat it for you. Yeah. That so the idea there is to say, don't get. I mean, it, it takes a. I mean, I underscore the notion of a meditation practice. It yeah. does take, and you have to, I guess, uh, believe that there's some good can come of this. That if you can learn, I'll often tell people I work with, I'll say, look, if you can get good at turning your mind off and not being able to be able to clear a space. What's interesting is when you do, and you do, I used to think, well, it's so boring to think about sitting around and just following my breath. Why the hell would I want to do that? I got things to do, places to go, you know? So you start realizing it's not so easy to just be focused on just that because you keep finding your mind going even onto the idea, am I doing this right? Or, oh, yeah. that reminds me, of, remember Betty Sue? Or I'm thinking over here about, oh, what I'm going to do when I'm done meditating, I got to remember to go here. So it's, always hard to keep pulling back but but the more you can do that the better you'll get at it and the longer you'll be able to sustain periods of not thinking and when you do that's when you op- you put yourself in a conducive state for actually sometimes creative ideas to come in many times when I'm when I was writing the book I'd be meditating and in that state I'd have a great idea and I would be 
I'd be like, oh, I want to get out and write. I want to get out and I want to write that down. Excuse me. Um, so I remember just thinking, okay, you're not going to forget it. Just go back onto the breath. You know, it was a little gift from the depths of your own unconscious or wherever it came from, but get back to the breath. And usually when I'm, uh, when I'm in a place where I can get into that and I'm really hot on a topic or I'm really interested in something, I just have these things pop in. It's, it's very creative. It's very reinforcing. But you do need to stick with it. And if yeah. it does bring something up, you know, people sometimes will have stuff come up and they'll say, you know what, uh, you know, and then, then they maybe that's a time to talk to somebody. It could be a friend, a therapist, whatever, because maybe it's something that's asking you to be cleared. And then I've heard a lot about just maybe getting some exercise, too, to sort of get some of that pent-up energy out. Absolutely. And I even suggest, back when I was in grad school, I, wrote a, I was a long-distance runner, and I um, wrote a paper called Extroverted Meditation, which I suggested that while you can't completely still yourself like you do sitting in a chair, if you get into, the, if you get into like, like distance running, for example, or long-distance swimming, you can find yourself... Uh, if you just monitor your body long enough to be able to just not be thinking about it, not in a competitive mind, not comparing yourself to somebody else, maybe per, maybe running through the woods or something. If you sustain that for a period of time, maybe 45, 50 minutes, you'll go into an altered state. And I remember, you know, you know, going out for long runs and just like coming back and feeling like I was tripping. <laughs> I went someplace with my mind. I had ideas about things, even had creative ideas come up. So so the body can definitely be a, a vehicle of release. Dance. There's a lot. The Sufis. You hear about how the Sufis get into their dancing. It induces a state of consciousness. Uh, even the, the shamans, they would be dancing to the drums, and you know, you just kind of go into an altered state just from dance. So it can be another way to release. Yeah, I had a note here uh, to ask you about learned helplessness and exercise, but I can't remember why. I put those two together. I wanted to ask you about learned helplessness, but how does is that tied to exercise or is that a separate topic? Well, the learned helplessness is a concept that was brought about by Martin Seligman, who also wrote a book called uh, uh, on positive uh, psychology, um, which is the movement of psychology these days. And learned helplessness is just a is an example of how people can their conditions of their lives can lead them to not see a way out or see ways in which they can solve their problems. Uh, and I could briefly tell you about it if you want me to. The, uh, the, the, the work he did was considered really well done. It was kind of like with dogs. They had two, let's just break it down. They had two dogs. Each of them were in cages. Both of them were standing on plates that were given a slight shock, not so abusively so, but it was uncomfortable. One dog had a lever in front of it. The other dog didn't. The dog that had the lever would squirm around and eventually just poking around, hit the lever with his nose and was able to realize he was able to stop the discomfort. The other dog realized there was no way out and just eventually laid down and just accepted that this was a situation that couldn't be changed. They then took both dogs, put them in new cages, <laughs> this time no lever, but the back of the cage, if you just nubbed it with your nose, half, the upper half would flip down and you could jump out. The dog that had the lever poked all around and pushed that cage down and jumped out. The dog that earlier on didn't have a way to stop the uh, shock just laid there, even though there was a way out. Yeah. And he called that helplessness. So you can see how that can apply to lots of people and situations. Yeah. And I guess, I guess to sort of bring that back to your crisis, the crisis part of your book is I would think that that crisis that happens for people and, and what you've talked about, the chrysalis crisis in your book is a way to get, I think it's a way to get some people out of that learned helplessness or it's a, you know, maybe it's either a shock to the system or. You know what I'm thinking of? I can't remember 
You know, I can't remember the name of him. He was on the Art of Manliness, though, not too long ago. And he was coming at it from a religious standpoint. He was like a pastor or something like that. Or a pastor, not a pastor. Mm-hmm. Pastor is what you turn into after you die. <laughs> um, he was uh, talking about how it's like, that's like the death of the first part of your bo- of your life. And that's like supposed to be a part of your development is the first part of your life is status and building the vessel and the last half is like filling it up. I can't remember his name, but he was talking about how if if you don't, you know, and that could be considered the same as a crisis. If you don't, if you don't get to that point, you never grow up for lack of a better word. Well, yeah. And the, what I've noticed over the, the 45 years I've been doing therapy is that when people come in, they're usually in crisis because why would you go to therapy to have tea or something? <laughs> and usually the, let's say, Let's say uh, you could take 10 people who all had a significant person in their life die, and maybe they're, they're dealing with grief. Now, you know, uh, some people, we talk about their pre-morbid state, which is how were they functioning before they faced this crisis in their life. Some people may have beliefs like, uh, I'm being punished because I made too much money or something like that. So you then say, well, let's take a look at your intellectual world and, and see if you can uh, understand your beliefs. And so they might lend themselves to a cognitive therapy therapy approach. Other people may have to feel sad or they may need to feel angry about what's happened, but maybe they're not that one of the areas in their lives, which hasn't been developed is they're not very aware of their feelings. So each person, the crisis may bring forth something where there's a, where development is needed. And that's where, you know, even though the crisis is painful, uh, it could be that the very struggle to uh, emancipate from the crisis and its impact in order to do that, it may force you to have to look at areas that need to be developed. Now, at first, you don't jump into a situation with somebody who just lost a spouse and say, okay, so what can you learn from this? You know, basically, you want to help them kind of ground and get, get, them, get their footing underneath them. But oftentimes, people will pivot at a point and say, you know what, you know, if it wasn't for that event, I don't think I ever would have, you know, like, realized uh, that I needed to be more social or I needed to be more open with my feelings or I always thought of myself as somebody who is, you know, just like doomed to have bad things happen and all these beliefs all across the board. And then uh, in, towards the back of the book, I get into spiritual emergencies as the kinds of crisis that awaken you to psychic abilities and s- direct contact with spirit. And that is why I put them all in crisis because I'm able to bridge, I was hoping to build a bridge, by the Pied Piper people over from the kinds of crises that are very conventional that just about everybody can appreciate to a point in the book where, you're saying, okay, wow, if I have a precognition, like my client at Michigan State, where something's going to happen and it happens, it scares me, you know, or I had an NDE, or I had the, I had, I beheld what I thought was an apparition of my mother after she died, and I think I might be losing my mind. So what is it? Mm-hmm. How could I experience? And people, when they have those kinds of experiences, they're really, or I had a, I had what it felt to me like the memory of a past life. Or, you know, what is this, am I losing my mind? And I'll say, well, maybe this is a kind of crisis that opens you up to some of these other kinds of experiences and capacities of consciousness, just like emotion, just like cognition, just like, you know, uh, social capacities, you have psychic capacities, you've got the capacity to directly engage spirit or be in touch with your spirit. So they're all, they're all the kinds of experiences that may be and bring in uh, an awakening of various functions, conventional and non-conventional. We call the we call the ones in the second half supernormal abilities, yeah. as opposed to normal. Yeah. So you got like sometimes you know somebody came in and had a 
precognition and they thought they were crazy. And in the old days, maybe everybody, you know, would say, oh, they are crazy. Anybody who thinks that they like beheld a spirit or thought they were outside their body, you know, before their car hit a tree and all that, they must be going through some kind of like uh, PTSD phenomenon or something. But now, you know, as more people have these experiences, they're suddenly saying, hey, maybe these are capacities that we have, but most of us don't believe they're there, which could inhibit them, or we're afraid of them, which could inhibit them. And as people become more familiar with them, we start realizing they're not abnormal. And yeah, they're not quite normal either, because they're pretty much outliers. They're exceptional, but they're not abnormal. They could be, for many people, what we would call supernormal experiences. Hmm. The fellow who came up with that word said, as we evolve as a species, what is now considered supernormal, like a Joe McMonagall might be considered to be having abilities that are supernormal, who, by the way, had two NDEs in his life because he was a Marine. He almost died twice, which is, you know, fits with the notion that when people have these NDEs, sometimes it loosens the tether of mind to the phys- physicality a little bit, right? So you have already, I've loosened, I've loosened that, and so maybe the subtle impressions that open me up to these kinds of abilities are more perceptible to me. And uh, that, that seems to stand true for a lot of people. So anyway, they're all on a continuum of capacities. And I believe that, and I do have a belief in reincarnation. I think we keep working on trying to, sophist- to grow and keep evolving and changing. And as we do, you know, even in the East, back in the days when Pentagoli 4,000 years ago introduced the world to Yoga Sutras, uh, he said, like, you know, as you get better and better at these things, you're going to start... Um, you're going to start registering impressions. They call them CDs, right? S-I-D-D-H-I-S. And we call them miracles. We others call them psychic side phenomena. He said, don't get enamored by them because then ego gets involved. <laughs> and then you start inhibiting the ability to have them. Because, you know, the tantric philosophy is such that mind, you know, above all is spirit and consciousness. And then it distills down to mind, which splits into physicality and ego or transpersonal and subtle. And the more your ego, the more you're focused on physicality or preoccupied with ego, the more you inhibit your ability to be to be uh, receptive to the subtle and the transpersonal. So you can see where, you know, it takes work to let go of that, uh, or to at least, you know, keep it in its place. Um, so how do you how do you do that then? So you have these experiences and you're you're starting to see more you know synchronicities and magic in your life, but you you're you need to keep. How do you tamper that to to keep it to keep it going? Like sometimes I'll get this this shiver, this really intense shiver, like it's like I'm intensely in the moment. It's almost like a download, and I and I can think myself right out of it, or I can try like. But sometimes the harder I try to keep it going, the quicker it dissipates. Yeah, no, that's a great. That's a great point. You know, it's a, it is elusive, and I think that a lot of times people who have psychic experiences realize that um, that they it's hard to bring him on demand. Now, this is why I have a lot of uh, respect for Joe McMonagall, who can and has done it on demand, was able to do some pretty amazing uh, remote viewing on demand. I watched him do a TV show, uh, Nightline or something, many years ago. I think it was some a show on a Friday night where he was literally set up. And everything was controlled, and he was able to perform even under those conditions. So, but you know, uh, there are people out there who I know have uh, have just are so gifted that they can just kind of like they they can be sat down in front of a computer or do some kind of uh, some kind of psych testing, psychic testing, and just always perform way above average. You know, they're kind of like your 
your percent of people that are just gifted already now is that one life gift or is that built over many yeah yeah no does it come up that's the thing that's another hypothesis we learned about you should let me back over you with the truck (laughs) see if we can thin your veil have a near-death experience yeah exactly (laughs) i got a business i'd rather you just like inject me with something controllable and maybe do it that way like flatline i don't think it works like that no this is the same concept as uh (laughs) logicking your placebo out of existence. <laughs> we just got to do it the old-fashioned way. Well, they're circling back to using drugs. Actually, at Johns Hopkins, they're now doing controlled studies with psilocybin as a way, just like back in the days with Timothy Lear, where they were telling that, hey, you know, maybe we can use drugs under the right conditions to bring uh, these states of consciousness forward. And then, of course, everybody said, and it's fun, so let's use it recreational. And then it went off the rails, you know? <laughs> You know, but now everybody's back to looking at it and saying, hey, under the right conditions, when somebody's ripe for insight and maybe transformation and change, if they've done some tenderizing, if you will, through some therapy and they're working in a supportive environment with people, just like as if, you know, went to uh, South America and did some ayahuasca. You know, if you're in the right place in the white space and you enter into those altered states, you may very well have you know, some uh, incredible experiences. Or maybe that could, maybe that could just be the tool to, to move your crisis into a chrysalis crisis, you know, maybe they get it, get you to that, to see something different. <laughs> we could try that. that. If you're, sorry. We could try that if you want. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what you shift, you would shift your perceptual yeah. uh, vantage point, And maybe if you did the work and are out of, you know, I also remember, cause I'm a child of the sixties. I also remember people messing around with it and knowing that they were pretty grounded and when they would take a mind-expanding drug, all it did was intensify being ungrounded so they'd have bad trips. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. people would say, well, you don't want to be doing LSD if you just broke up with your boyfriend yeah. and you had, uh, you know, some kind of, like, financial disaster right beforehand. That's not the kind of thing you want to be doing. Yeah, that's a good but point. Set and setting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. So so you mentioned the different types of crisis, like if somebody has, you know, a, a death in the family or... Some other massive crisis, phys- you know, physically in their life, but then they also have these spiritual emergencies, which, um, you know, maybe it's it's from a more paranormal angle. But you also mentioned um, the I think it was your your story where you had you had ramped up your sort of your seeking your spiritual journey so much that it it was a bit of an overload. <clears throat> and I I thought that's what uh, do you want to talk about that aspect a little bit of. Of sure. what happens if you if you go too hard in yeah. <laughs> in this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> too much of anything is not good. Uh, well, I was actually at a point where I, I would say I was midlife, maybe about 44 at the time. And I had what actually, when I look back at it, a bit of a, what you might call a Kundalini rush after an operation, I had my knee and my shoulder worked on. Um, but, but I also, what happened is that ushered in for me... Uh, a time in my life where I started saying, okay, you know what? I got my house, got my car, got my three kids. And, you know, like a lot of people who go through midlife, sometimes it's usually when those things are satiated, satiated or, uh, you know, you start thinking about it, you know, is that all there is? There must be other things. And I had wandered off my passion for becoming a psychologist, which was to look into all these alternative areas, you know? And so then I, I worked with somebody here north of town in an organization called Pathwork, which is very open to, um, the psychic and spiritual. And, and, you know, so I thought, let me work with somebody to help me, you know, navigate through this. And then I became interested in like training as a past life therapist, working with a shaman in Peru for a while, who also came up here. 
uh, pursued uh, working with a woman who did some you know, what they call Phoenix Rising Yoga, which is using yoga positions almost in a way where you're trying to induce states of consciousness to help you grow and learn. Worked with a Barbara Brennan healing healer who was also a massage therapist who just worked with energy. And I had all these things going on, but I kind of went after it pretty aggressively, typical male way, you know, there's like jump in there, do a rotor rooter on my psyche and soul, you know. And, uh, and what happened is I think I, I kind of got too intense with it. And then I started having, I think, um, too aggressive with myself. I started having what I consider to be uh, kundalini experiences. I started uh, with what is called in Hindu uh, religion, uh, uh, as I, uh, I started having skin uh, things happening to my body. I thought I was having a neurological problem. I started feeling pains in different places. I developed AFib for a period of time, uh, heart arrhythmias which I've also heard, you know, it can be uh, stirred from doing a lot of emotional work. And, um, and so at that point, I was realizing, wow, you know, one needs to go along this moderately, even if I'm really curious and have a lot of pent up demand to plunge into it. And sometimes you'll see people who overdo it, they'll go to, they'll just like spend really long time fasting and meditating. And sometimes, you know, you can bring forth maybe more than you can digest. And so they can even look psychotic, which is a spiritual emergency. And, um, and, and may need to be grounded. And sometimes, even with an antipsychotic for a couple of days, just to get them grounded. We'll even say, eat meat, <laughs> you know, walk in the grass and bare feet, do things literally to ground yourself, because, you know, you need to learn how to move into that in a more gentle, gradual way to be able to, as Sri Aurobindo would say, you can have these experiences, but you need to augment the ground. I mean, you can flash out there and use a drug and have an awakening, unity experience or a mystical experience, and then you, re, you contract, you move back. But the idea is if you move in gradual steps, you can augment the ground as you go. And so um, I wasn't doing that. Sometimes people don't do that, or sometimes just because of what's happening in their lives, maybe they, they have a, uh, an uprush of, uh, of a past life memory, or they may, have, they may go through a period where they're having a lot of uh, uh, psychic experiences. And and for the most part, because the world isn't really validated a lot, or it's foreign to even those who believe in it, uh, it's scary. I mean, even though I believe in a lot, I believe in a lot of this stuff. And I know it's valid. Uh, when you have an experience, it's like you start doubting that I really had that experience. Am I deluding myself? Am I wanting to believe I had an experience? You know, it's really sometimes so far out there. It, we're so conditioned to time and space as we've been, as we've been, you know, like accommodated to, and we've accommodated to, and acclimated to it. That when something happens, like a precognition, you think. How could I have known something that hasn't happened yet? Yeah. Even synchronicities. Yeah. You start seeing how, how could all these things come together at the same time? How could a physical thing, an animal, something else, all this stuff come together in this moment? It's beyond probabilities. I mean, I know statisticians will always say, well, don't worry, we'll come up with a number for it. But then you think, oh my God, well, how big is that number? You know, what else is operating here? You know? So, oh, yeah. Uh, We've talked about synchronicities here that, that you can't even imagine a number being put on it. I mean, it's just it's just too astronomical. So so what about um, hmm, what about uh, when you so when you you recognize that this was happening, you, you grounded yourself a little bit and then you actually got over these effects. I think what happens is you. Um you expand to accommodate, you, you um, grow to accommodate the expansion of consciousness. Right. I'm not saying, right. like, you know, you know, I think Instantly, you always have yeah. to be, I'm suggesting I'm like a Joe McMonagle or something. But you start getting a taste of these experiences. And I think there's nothing like having an experience. When I work with people who have these spiritual emergencies, they're starting with experience. 
you know, and so they are, had the experience. Now right. they're looking for confirm, for, for uh, assurance that they're not losing their mind and or explanations, which the book tries to provide. It tries to provide an explanatory model for how can you understand some of these anomalous, ex, uh, supernormal experiences on a developmental or on a across the board way of looking at areas of development that are very familiar to us. Uh, but for me, I think what happened over time was I, I had a lot of insight in areas about where maybe I had fear or maybe where I was, you know, even my fear of coming out around a lot of these areas had stories behind it. You know, there were, uh, I think what, what happened for me was the things I thought I would never broach, like talking like I am with you right now, never would have thought I would do that at 40 or 45. And now it's sort of like, I think in many ways, even in terms of my own courage or assurance from reading more research, uh, that you get more comfortable in saying, okay, I don't need, everybody would agree with me, even the closest people in my life may not agree with me, but, you know, you hold on to your own integrity and you say, this is my experience, this is how I understand it. So I think that was a big piece of work for me to go out and work with a lot of these people and try to have the experiences with them and saying, okay, well, what was that then? Uh, I know people go, oh, come on, you can't really retrieve a past life. Well, then what was that experience? It makes a lot of sense to me when I look at my life, that that would be an influencing lifetime, you might say. Or uh, if I work with an energy worker and I'm on the table and all of a sudden my body is shivering like I had a fever and I'm saying, what's going on with me? And she's saying, you're just releasing energy. I'm thinking, that sounds nice in theory, but I'm shaking on the table right now and this is really freaking weird, you know? So, um, you know, things like that, or, or you start saying when you're going through really like, when I'm at retreats, and I have a dream, like a little bit of a precognitive dream, and I'll realize, well, I'm immersed in a silent retreat where I'm doing meditation, and I'm really open into subtle impressions, so my dreams get richer. And I start seeing, wow, you know, uh, these impressions I'm allowing to come before my threshold of awareness, where otherwise it may get blurted out in my usual day-to-day -day stuff when I'm preoccupied at home. So um, I think you start seeing, well, if you get a taste of some of these experiences, I think, particularly if you have a beautiful experience, like, a unity experience or a mystical experience. A lot of people want to try to get them back. Oftentimes they, they don't, but you only need one to say, wow, you know, what was that about? Mm -hmm. And what do you do to be able to, buy, to abide in that place? <laughs> yeah, it seemed realer than real life. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So what, what are some of the areas that you would suggest? Like if somebody wanted to get into uh, uh, psych, psychology or clinical psychology or even some of these alternative things like past life regressions or maybe even the psilocybin trials or something, what would you suggest for, like, there's so many different ways to help people, but is there something that you think is going to be the next thing that people should get into, or is there something that you would suggest for people if they were going to do that kind of thing? Well, one of the nice things that's happening right now is mindfulness training, where you talked about the relaxation response. Back in 1976, when Herbert, I think it's Herbert Benson. Benson, yeah, yeah. Did it, uh, that was radical, just to do a deep relaxation technique. Yeah. You know, even hypnosis has always been kind of like a, you know, uh, a peripherally looked upon, uh, you know, set of skills that, you know, conventional psychology took years before they embraced it and said, hey, this can be really a very powerful tool to work with. So I would say people who, there's a book that I reviewed by a fella, it was called Clinical Parapsychology, which there is a field, there's a field right now where, you know, people who are grounded psychologists are are looking at um, these uh, parapsychological experiences, not like the kind that Hollywood throws out there. But, you know, you get people who, are, who have experiences who are saying, well, when somebody comes in my office with a, 
an experience like that, I, when I do an assessment, I am going to check and see, are they grounded? Where are they del- excuse me, delusional? Are they hallucinating? Is there something about a manic psychosis they're going through? Rule out all the conventional ways. But when I see that they're pretty grounded, then we talk about, okay, so you know, what do you make of that experience? Like, How do you understand it? And usually I'll point them to books and share what information I can. I try not to tell them what they should be experiencing, but I encourage them to look into it and learn about it. You know, when you go review the, le- the research on parapsychology and all these phenomena, there's a lot of research that's been around for over 100 years, done really with tight, controlled studies, because everybody knows they're going to be like, just right. looked at. You know, skeptics are going to look for any kind of mistakes you make statistically, or controls, or any other variables that are going to be able to explain away the actual effect you're getting. So, you know, there, it's hard to make a living as a parapsychologist. I would say get into a conventional field, but, you know, and then do some of that other work if you're interested in, in, in learning about it. Um, however, there are, you know, trainings. You can do trainings. Uh, I think what happens is one of the things I feel as a trained clinical psychologist is when you start opening people up through hypnosis or using alternative states as a means to try to get people in touch with themselves, you know, you need to be able to know when you're bringing forth something in somebody that they're not ready for, or it may be you don't want to be a bulldozer in their unconscious. You know, you need to realize if somebody's got PTSD, they're repressing a trauma for a good reason. They're trying to function. If you go in there and say, "Oh, well, you can just go back and revisit that," you'll re-traumatize them. So like like that guy that regressed somebody in the in the conference and then walked out afterwards, and you had to bring him back. Oh, you remember that story? Yeah, That's yeah. Too- that was scary for me because I remember, actually, I actually remember when he walked by me, I had this creepy feeling early in the conference. I wow. Like, I felt like a snake slithered by me. I swear to God, this is the image I had when he went wow, by Wow, that's crazy that you felt that. And then later on that evening, I hear this blood-curdling scream coming out of the conference, and he had done some past life regression with this woman. And, she, and when people go into these experiences, whether they're legitimately past lives or not, they are flailing, they are feeling things they are they are you know many times people will go back to a point when they were maybe a, a, a death doorstep maybe the the trauma of how they died in a past life might be the most retrievable because it is so impressionable and indelibly marked on their spirit if you will so when somebody goes into those experiences it can scare the hell out of, of the person who's doing the work and i don't think this guy was trained so he left her he just walked out and when i asked who it was who did it later on i tried to come in and stabilize the woman they said it was this guy, and I thought, oh, that's funny. That doesn't surprise me. He seemed kind of shaky to me when he walked by. But um, anyway, uh, she scared the hell out of me, quite honestly, because I'm thinking, here I am. I'm in town for, like, what, maybe two years trying to get my life up and running as a, you know, as a, as a, uh, as a therapist. I want to make sure everybody knows I'm really grounded. I really want to do conventional therapy, even if I have these other interests. So I was a little bit like, whoa, if my name gets associated here, you know, it's a different. That's where I had my own, like, uh, uh, my own fears, you know, leading yeah. me to lead life a little bit. But, yeah, but that wasn't helpful. And it, she came to see me after that for a while. And she was really um, able to go into altered states. And I remember thinking, you know what? Sometimes you need to have the structure around you that enables you to sort of, like, keep one foot grounded while the other one is able to, like, dip down into deeper places in the unconscious. Uh, a good example of people who can't do that are schizophrenics. They drop way down into places and they can't pull themselves out. And they, yet your geniuses can dip down like an Edison into those places and pull out usable information. They may need to dust it off and clear it up. That's why they always say there's a thin line 
between genius and insanity because everybody's going down into that place, but the, the people who are grounded can pull themselves out and, and dust it off, clean off what's not real, what is real, maybe pull out the gem you know, of, of an idea, whereas others who don't have that grounding can't differentiate between what's real and not real. Oh, that's interesting about the schizophrenics. I mean, I was going to ask you about that specifically because, I mean, the really interesting thing is this clinical parapsychology. I mean, that's almost the way you started this whole thing off with that NDE patient, you know, that you kind of, you know, sussed him out in that, in that, uh, in that regard. But how many, do you think there's a, a bunch of um, schizophrenics or is there a decent percentage that maybe that, that it is something you know, parapsychological, where you could bring them back with some sort of acceptance to, you know, um, anomalous phenomena? Or? You know, I, I think there are both uh, neurochemical and genetic uh, contributions to why some people are schizophrenic. Um, uh, and there was, when I was studying back in the 70s, there was a fellow who said that sometimes if you're subjected to and in, in very, like, uh, uh, sort of like uh, limited contact with the outside world and, and what he called and predominantly influenced by a schizophrenogenic family. He said, you can seem psychotic because your thinking is so unreal, but it's not because of some neurochemical or genetic predisposition. And you just need to have enough, enough of a dose of the way the rest of the world thinks to get more grounded. But, um, but I do think there might be something because I do know a couple of people who are pretty gifted psychics who seem to have somebody in the family who are schizophrenics. And I'm not sure what the relationship is there, whether there's something genetically or maybe there uh, something about the way their brains function enable them. You know, I usually see the brain as a transmitter of these capacities rather than the producer of them. So there might be something that we may yet learn in how the brain works that enables us to transmit these these uh, you might say fields of influence. If you think of consciousness as a field that's around us, within us. You know, and that we're trying to like be in a place of stillness to receive its subtle bits of information that we can then use. You might say that our brain or we are the conduit through which it it, it reveals itself, yeah. and that's why you try stuff in a real still space. But um, I I know there's a there's a whole field out there that I think you know if we can um, you know there's good research to show that it's no longer do, do there's a uh, 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 what's his name? Um, Ian Radin, who does a lot of work in parapsychology. He's got a PhD in engineering and mm -hmm. psychology, and he does some wonderful research. And, you know, he'll say, as others will, you know, no longer is is it do these um, do these are these phenomena real? There's been enough validation. They've actually been replicated under controlled conditions. I think the question now for many people is, how do they work? How is it that they work? And as a therapist, my question is. What do they say about human evolution and development? I'm more interested. How do I take this to people and say, what does this represent in terms of where we are going or growing as a species? You know, um, so there's lots of different questions surrounding it other than is it still real? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> isn't there isn't there kind of a crisis in psychology right now with replicating some of the old experiments anyway, the, the non-parapsychology uh, ones, even just the regular human behavioral ones? Well, you know what? I wish I could tell you I've stayed on top of the literature. Uh, I'm sure somebody coming out of a PhD program right now can give me a lot of instruction about that. And you may very well be right because, you know, people need to replicate. And sometimes when they go back and look at some of the earlier, earlier things that were, uh, you know, explored, you know, things change. You know, measures get sharper. 
and so, yeah, there may be. I'm not aware of that as much. I know psychology itself is moving more towards positive psychology and trying not to be totally focused on what's pathological, but what is what is ways in which you can work with people psychologically to enhance life. And the fellow who you we talked about earlier who did the learned helplessness study, Martin Seligman, you know, he's a key, he's a key person in that positive psychology movement. His book, Authentic Happiness, is interesting to look at. And after that, he wrote another book called Flourish. And they're both very positive. You know, and not, not to just like do a lot of flowery, Pollyannish ways, but ways in which you can work with yourself to enhance your life rather than say, you know, let's start looking at whether you're schizophrenic or bipolar. I mean, that stuff still needs to be done because people are and they need help. And a lot of times a combination of therapy and medication can be the way. But the majority of the world, I think, would like to learn how to enhance their lives. Uh, I'll go out on a limb and guess that two of those big factors are like love and gratitude. I would say so. I would think, you know, as a father who's raised three children, I think that uh, that you can never love your kids enough. I mean, I work with people and I feel they come in to see me and they have never felt loved and cherished. Uh, it's often a wound that's very difficult to try to help heal. Uh, and a lot of times, I mean, you know, it seems simple. Um, I don't think it's going to cure everything. but I think, And I think gratitude is also... Uh, a beautiful thing to, for people to get in touch with. And so you start getting into meditations and you start getting into like you know, trying to use time in contemplation to reflect on gratitude or reflect on compassion. These are things that can lift the heart and I think contribute to the positive psychology you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, that's fantastic. So what a what, uh, couple quick uh, questions there before we start wrapping it up and then give you a chance to talk about uh, what you're planning on doing in the future and all that. So what, what what about your decision to write this book? It seems like, and I think you mentioned this in the book, about it's been a journey for you over over many years. Um, the book is almost like an accumulation of that. Um, what made you decide to to write it? Well, I think I, I think I finally wanted to articulate my understanding of how um, sort of the broad spectrum of ways in which we function as humans and look at both the conventional ways. Like if you look at the 10 key areas, I break them down into like, you know, the foundational, the physical, the intellectual, the emotional, the social, the moral. And then I talk about the personal areas, like one's capacity for intimacy, existential growth, for finding meaning and purpose in life or identity that always changes throughout life. And then I move into the transpersonal. I wanted to build a bridge I wanted to try to build a bridge for people to see that the transpersonal area, the area when we're talking about psychic phenomena or, or even direct contact with spirit in various forms, or reincarnation, that this can all be on a continuum and it can be articulated. So that was my, it's been my attempt to articulate it. And um, yeah, so that was the, I didn't want to, you know, interestingly, I'll tell you something on a very personal level. The first two, the first half of the book was easier to write, took less risk. I mean, it was clearly trying to cover a broad range of stuff and, you know, one chapter for each area, which you can imagine, there's like an amazing amount on each of those areas, like emotion or social development and all that. But right before I moved into the transpersonal section of the book, which was the most, I felt riskiest for me to talk about some of my own experiences and other things that I knew that were going to be like probably met with more resistance from others. You know, I got sick and it was threatening my life. I got cancer. Wow. I, got, I remember thinking, okay, it was right in between when I was about to move on to that section of the book, and I thought to myself, as a midlife crisis might do for many people, um, I thought, well, what's going to happen if I die and I never get this out? You know, what am I going to feel on my deathbed? I'm going to say, damn, I should have said what I wanted to say, you know? Why didn't I do it? So that was kind of an existential kick in the butt. No. Just go, 
you know don't leave anything ahead. out don't leave anything out of this one yeah man it's just like say it and jesus you know just deal with the fallout later but so it was really like uh, my desire to get it out there you know it'd be helpful for some people it might not be it's not it may not be for everybody some people may get more out of the first part of the book or a given chapter but i think uh there's a there's an element of uh of trying to provide an explanatory model for some of the stuff that happens in the transpersonal area. And I wanted to try to articulate that. Yeah. Well, that was a great, it's a great book. I, I really enjoyed it. So we do recommend uh, people check it out. Fantastic. Add it to our collection of that kind of like, you know, science versus uh, science bridge to metaphysical kind of category. And, and also a little bit about, you know, like the transpersonal stuff and, and how, I mean, the crisis part is, I mean, it reminded me a lot about, about people having to hit rock bottom, that whole cliche about having to hit rock bottom before you can come out on the other side. I mean, I came through addiction and alcoholism myself. So that was my crisis was going through that. And I, so I totally resonate with, with that whole, that whole shift. Um, well, yeah. I mean, what? so it's, it's, it's really, uh, really important for people I think to realize that there is, there can be real positive things from, uh, from crises. Sure. If people choose to use it that way and some yeah. people will, they'll navigate through the crisis and they'll say, okay, let's sleeping dogs lie. I'm good. Yeah. I don't want to use it as a catalyst for growth and others will. They'll say, you know, like, so what did that teach me? How can, what can I learn about myself in terms of how I came through that? Yeah. You know, where, 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 where have I gotten stronger? A lot of people, that's great. I'm glad you did that. Uh, and so, yeah, I'd like to see people use it that way. Yeah. So what do you, what do you plan on doing next? Are you doing, do you have anything else on the go after this or? Right now, I mean, I'm actually, I'm not sure. I actually had a cue about an area of research that I was kind of curious about, uh, that I started presenting to my colleagues at the university. I have a client who's a narcoleptic and, um, uh, I, I have found that she seems to have a fair amount of psychic ability. Oh. And when I, and I was telling you earlier about that state of uh, consciousness that seems to be right on the edge of sleep and wakefulness. I thought, wow, you know, I wonder if narcoleptics, if I went out and surveyed a number of narcoleptics, if I find a higher incidence of psychic experiences. So I might do some research like that. I don't know if I'm ready to jump into it right now, but I have um, the opportunity to maybe get a few colleagues on board. So it might be pure research or maybe something when I get great questions like you guys have asked and other things i'm kind of wondering you know is this going to stimulate taking another turn maybe starting another book with what i finished with this one you know maybe yeah. doing a little bit of a deeper plunge into some of these other areas yeah there's a lot to, i mean you really just scratch the surface on all those little 10 key areas and all the transpersonal stuff i mean this the past life thing is huge for me like i've i've known people and i have a couple friends that are starting to learn how to do that and i mean just the acknowledgement of some of these past life issues seem to to present healing for people i mean it's it, you don't even have to go that that deep just that sort of that that quick view of of you know what some of the the trauma is based on is enough for some people so there's a lot of opportunity there yeah i mean and that's you know what you're saying is very true in that you know whether it's a past life or not it does seem to be therapeutically efficacious it's effective people do change yeah. and some they'll say wow what was that and i don't know i'll say i don't know you know that could have been a past life maybe your unconscious created a story for you but what happened was you experienced the feelings you had insight you shifted maybe even had change in physical sensations in your body and so there's therapeutic outcome and nobody argues that but people will say well it's not really a past life maybe it's the mind's ability well i'll leave the jury out on that i'll exactly. say hey whatever the heck it was if it helped you heal i'm with it yeah exactly we don't always need to know that's it whatever floats your boat 
Well, it has been a really, really fun chat with you, yeah, Frank. Seems- and I mean, if you ever do, if, if you ever have any of this other research or you want to come back on the show, it'd be great. It's been, uh, it's been great chatting with you. For inviting me. Yes, I'd love to. Next Thanks time I'll eat a for- couple caps and we'll go deep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll leave that one alone. <laughs> Right, right on, Frank. Okay. Yeah, you- thanks for coming on the show. Come back anytime. Are you on any social media or anything like that where our listeners can track okay. you down? I'm kind of, uh, I mean, you can get me on frankbashuti.com. Okay. There you a- go. Uh, and, uh, you know, the book's available on Amazon, the great monster of book production <laughs> and, uh, and places. But you can just get me on frankbashuti.com. I had a blog going for a while. I may start it up again, particularly if I start getting questions yeah. about in the book i'll probably start writing more about it see if that, awesome. that might evolve awesome yeah. right all on right. I'll, I'll put links to all that in the show notes so thanks for coming on thanks for coming thanks on the show frank come back anytime have a lovely evening all right you too Bye. okay Bye. Bye. wow that was fantastic that was a chat yeah frank pashuti yeah that was great that was Pichuti. a good book yeah. is that right yep nailed Pichuti. it yeah uh did you put uh rich roar in the show notes that was the guy. That's why I passed you my phone. He oh. kind of looked at me weird and didn't do anything. Rich Roar. Yeah. I probably made a note of the uh, thing, and then I'll go search it later. That's what I do every It week. didn't look like he did that. I didn't see. I didn't notice that. Look, have you seen all the uh, all the books? Yeah, no, I specifically watched to see if you're going to type anything, and you uh, did it. I might not. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, big thanks to Frank for coming on the show. Fantastic chat. Where'd you find him? Uh, actually, it was a publicist, Sarah Scarlett. Oh, did you ever yeah. get the book? I didn't get it physically, and I might. I got the PDF, which is fine, but, I mean, I would like the book for uh, the studio, obviously, but I think um, I think she might have thought now that I had the... No, 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 that's not good. You got to get the hard copy. Yeah, I know. I know. Be... It, was a good, it was a really good chat. I mean, it's fantastic that uh, we get an opportunity to talk to people like this that are, you know, have been through all this and open-minded and... They know all the research and just fantastic. Oh yeah, you can't can't beat it. I mean, uh, really is uh, an adventure. I was going to mention that when you were talking about the bookshelf uh, having sections, and I think isn't it just like Darren and Graham's journey shelf? Because <laughs> there's no sections. It's, <laughs> no, just know, it's just a mess. But you could just close your eyes and pick a book and probably enjoy it. Except yeah. the UFO ones. I mean, those don't really do it for me. I could probably get into one of them, though. I was going to buy a whole bunch of old UFO books to, thinking maybe they're once after disclosure they're going to be worth something. <laughs> all those old, like, because you can go to used bookstores, they've got them, all these cheap, like, UFO books, five bucks a book, four bucks a book. Check out the place in Strathmore, like 50, or in Langdon. That'd be cool. Never-ending stories or something books. like that. I think mm-hmm. I went in there the other day, I walked out with six books, and she was like, that'll be like six bucks or four fifty or something like that. It was less than five dollars. Yeah, that's crazy. How can they even do that? And the one was the hardcover uh hundred hundred dollar startup whatever by Gillibrand. Anyway, oh, cool. Uh great show with Frank. It kind of really fit in with where you're I mean, that was quite amazing that it fit in with the books you're reading right now. I, kinda, I literally like just finished emotional intelligence. And it kind of bridges that ma- magic up. metaphysical thing. You know what the interesting thing is is I got uh, social intelligence and I had just finished emotional intelligence and I didn't realize it was the same author. Oh. It just happened. Oh, that's weird. Because really? I, I was just in Ferris Ferris books and I seen social intelligence. I and then like, you ah. got emotional intelligence and it was the same guy? No, I already had emotional oh, intelligence. Oh, yeah. And I, see, I just yeah. realized yeah. after it was the same guy. And anyway, yeah, as I said, it was a mini synchro. I mean, what are the chances I'd be just reading that book and he would bring it up? Yeah. Probably pretty good nowadays. Probably pretty good, yeah. <laughs> 
Anyway. That's a single we can put a statistic no, yeah, on. It's like probably like two, one in hundred or something. Like two or one. One percent. Roll a percent of that. One point one. One point one. Okay. Anyway, uh, big thanks to you guys for supporting the show. We love you for it. If we didn't have you guys, uh, we wouldn't have a show. There'd be no show, and then ninety nine percent would be shit out of luck. And Graham and I would be shit out of luck, and this whole experiment would come crashing down in a horrible end. But we're hoping that's not going to happen. Join the chats, grammerica.ca slash chats. And uh, I'm telling you, it's not just social media. Your life will become a little better in the chats. A lot of love and camaraderie and, and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, boosting each other up in the chats. Most days. Some days, some days it's just John and Paul fighting. As long as there's not a democratic debate going on. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes <laughs> it gets pretty, pretty, uh, yeah. We have a room for that. Would that. You have a room for that now? We have Chat a fight room. room. For that? Okay, yeah. good. We have a fighting room. The anyway, join the, the chats, support the show, grimerica.ca slash support, and uh, boost your karma. Other than that, have some good vibes for your weekend. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. I feel safe I feel safe when I'm with you It must be your grace How you skate in figure eights Beneath the spinning disco ball A high skate, a high skate, a high skate. In figure eights, in figure eights, in figure eights. Beneath the spinning, beneath the spinning, beneath the spinning disco ball. High you catch. A higher catch, a higher catch Me when I fall, when I fall, when I fall And after all, and after all, and after all You're my wonder wall, my wonder wall, my wonder wall And I will hold on
shore to shore for you Cause mi amor, I sure do adore you High escape, a high escape, a high escape Invigorates, invigorates, invigorates Beneath the spinning, beneath the spinning, beneath the spinning Disco ball
CryMerica.ca slash support. CryMerica.ca slash support. Oh, fee, fi, fiddly, I, oh, and tell them Felix sent you there.